Welcome to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. These days, it's easy to see how technology has shaped our intimate relationships. Tinder, Grindr, Bumble. But we often overlook some of our earliest innovations and the radical impacts they had. A new book by Harvard business professor Deborah Spar makes a very bold claim that some of our most basic family structures, like a monogamous marriage, are not the result of religious institutions, but of changes in technology. In other words, it's innovations that continuously reformulate our sense of relationships. And even though we think the human story is built upon timeless traditions, the real story, she argues, is actually more fluid. The book is called Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. Well, Deborah Spar, thanks for joining us on KCRW. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, so I think we hear one story about the traditional family structure. It's of marriage. It's between a man and a woman. It's the idea that we have been monogamous for as long as humans have been around. That, that's kind of, I think, the mainstream story. But your book, I think, goes uh, tells a very different story through a lot of research as well. Um, and you talk specifically how kind of uh, the invention, let's talk about the plow, for example, the switch to an agrarian lifestyle was was a massive change in, in the kind of the family structure of being a human. No, that's that's right. And it's, um, you know, the book, the book goes all the way back in time to, to 8000 BC. But but if you think about all of human history, it sounds weird to say, but 8000 BC actually isn't all that long ago. And if you if you go way back, we'll see that for most of human history, which is of course hundreds and of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, people lived in tribal bands. Uh, we were the hunters and gatherers. We lived in groups that are estimated to have been about twenty to thirty people, and we lived in tribes. And we only started to develop marriage as we now think of it around eight thousand BC, which was critically when small groups of people began to develop the plow, but but sort of more broadly, we began to develop agriculture. And, you know, from our vantage point today, the plow hardly seems like a technological revolution, but it was. It was arguably, and, and most historians would agree, it was the first great technological revolution that humans faced. And as we moved away from the older habits of finding our food and foraging for our food to actually growing our food, kind of everything changed. Governments emerge, towns emerge, sadly, war and slavery emerge. But crucially, uh, what I'm focusing on is that marriage emerged, or certainly the kind of marriage that that we now think of as as natural uh, was in fact a societal creation, which was was really about making sure that families had children to farm the land and crucially children to inherit the land. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, so before we even got to that idea of the agrarian society working the land, I mean, what would relationships have looked like? Would they have been more kind of polyamorous as we think of them now? Would would a man have had children with multiple women? What what would that have been? Well, from what we know, and, and again, you know, to be honest here, a lot of this is is based on work that archaeologists and anthropologists have have done. So there's some speculation. But, but if you look at those groups that lived until recently in essentially pre-agricultural uh, ways, you tend to have pairings that are not lifelong. So clearly women give birth to the children, have always given birth to the children. So women 
bond with the children. But it's not always known who the genetic father was. And sometimes women would, would spend large portions of their life with one man. Sometimes they would spend large portions of their life with several men. Oftentimes, and this varies a lot from society to society, but oftentimes sort of who all the men in the tribe have some responsibility for the children. So it's much more communal and there doesn't seem to have been any sense of what we, we start to see in the post-agricultural societies, certainly of a woman being bound to a man and, and expected to remain fully loyal to that man and that man only. And I wonder if we still see any examples of this, though, in indigenous cultures around the world. Is that something you thought about? Yeah, and this is, you know, I, I, I'm not an anthropologist, so I'm, I'm basing all this on the work of others. And, and sadly, as, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, indigenous tribes are becoming fewer and fewer around the world. But in some of these tribes that either still exist or existed at the turn of the 20th century when anthropologists were studying them, you do see um, not necessarily matriarchal societies, although there's some of that, but what you certainly see is looser bonds between a given man and a given woman. So sexual fidelity, in, in our sense, is much less common in most of these pre-agricultural uh, societies. That is fascinating. So then, you know, when we when we move through the timeline here, suddenly we, we talk about the invention of the plow. We talk about a different agrarian based society. And one thing you do write about a lot is also there is a major shift in gender roles, right? Yes. And this is one of the most fascinating and I, and I think sort of puzzling aspects of this story that what happens when you move to agriculture is that children for the first time in history have a real economic value. Because if you think about it, if you're a hunter or gatherer, children, much as we must have loved them back then as well, were kind of a burden. They had to be carried, they might attract animals, and they weren't very useful. Once you move to agriculture, children become valuable. And, <clears throat> sorry, the early agricultural societies needed to produce children. And back then, still you could argue today, the only ways to produce labor is either by stealing it from other people, which is why slavery sadly uh, emerges at this moment as well, or by producing it on your own, which is reproduction. So you might have imagined that women's roles and women's power would have grown because, of course, women were the ones who produced the children. And yet what happened was the reverse in, in virtually every society that people have either studied or can trace, which is that because women's reproductive powers became so valuable, the men of the tribe controlled women's fertility. And women produced children for the tribe initially, and then it became much more for their own nuclear family. So women's value became what was increasingly seen not as producers of food, as had been the case in the pre-agricultural societies, but as the producers of children. And so therefore, their reproductive powers had to be guarded and preserved, which is why you see this, this sort of adoration of the virgin. The women are celebrated as virgins, and then as soon as they produce children with a given man, um, or they're only allowed to produce children with a given man once they are already bound in monogamy. And if you if you even read through the the lines of a traditional marriage ceremony now, you can still see those vestiges that the woman is given away by her father. She is given to a man, and she promises to be faithful to him forever and to be fruitful and multiply. So it's not a very romantic view of marriage, I'm afraid, but it just is uh, what the historical record seems to indicate. 
That's really that 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 question about the idea of the virgin, right? That that just seems really interesting. I mean, is there anything else you can add to that? Well, there's and again, we're you know we're picking up clues throughout the historical record here. But if you look at the um, the Old Testament, which is an interesting, albeit somewhat you know com- or very complicated source, because of course it's not a history book. But if you read the Old Testament, you can see this sort of transfer of power. That first of all, a lot of the Old Testament is really just about tracking lineage, whose children belong to which men. It's really a, a genealogy. And, and you also see that the Israelites are being commanded to give up their worship of false gods. And those gods, the gods that they were moving away from, were goddesses. That in the pre-agricultural era, it appears, most or at least a large chunk of, of the gods our ancestors worshipped were goddesses. They were female. But as we move to monotheism, we move away from the worship of the goddesses, away from the worship of the female, and onto uh, a single worship of a single god, who, and I know people will argue with me on this, but is generally perceived or represented as, as being more male than female. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what, I think what I'm picking up in this, too, is that the kind of Judeo-Christian notion of family, of marriage, of children begins kind of now in this period of time that you're talking about. No, that's exactly right. Um, And of course, you know, this period of time lasted a very long time. History moved much more slowly back in 8000 BC. It took thousands of, of years for these technologies to become cemented. But yes, that is what I'm arguing is that as we moved away from this ancient human past of hunting and gathering, and we settle down, we develop towns and governments and religion. And the monotheistic religions were about, as you just mentioned, you know, the, the worship of one God and a societal structure that was largely centered on the family rather than the tribe, although tribes, we still see them there, but the, the, the family becomes the dominant social structure. And it is defined, as we still think of it today, as a, a permanent union till death do us part, between one man and one woman, pledging fidelity and devoted uh, to creating children. And that's really the purpose of the family. Yeah. And you also bring in some interesting kind of Marxist theory, though, as well, which says that, you know, part of moving to agriculture was the idea of property ownership, which would have been really new, I think, in the story of man. That that factors in a lot, doesn't it? Yes. And it's, uh, I found myself reading quite a lot of Marx in doing the research for this book, which was, you know, not exactly what I had expected. But but Marx is really uh, quite brilliant in terms of his historical and analysis. Um, not so much the, the prescriptions, but the historical analysis is very intriguing. And he and, and others now have, have uh, echoed this argument. He points out that in the hunting-gathering phase, there is no private property. There is no land ownership. People only owned or what they could take with them, which was virtually nothing. It was a basket, maybe, or a, an axe. But once you move to agriculture, uh, private property becomes crucial. Because not only do you have to own your land, but you also have to own your seeds. You have to own your storage tanks. You have to control water. And so private property as a social structure emerges with the revolution that was agriculture. And, and I think if you see history through those lens, um, it really it, it teaches us to focus on what Marx calls the means of production and what I think today we think about as technology. So as the means of production change, as our technologies change, as our tools change, society follows accordingly. 
Well, um, I mean, just to continue with this theme of technology, so we're talking about some of the early forms here, um, uh, whether it be the plow or, or ways of irrigation, so on and so forth. But let's let's now jump through the timeline a little bit, because another major uh, period of history that you talk about is industrialization, and particularly three different um, major pieces of technology that would change how we understand the family. This is the automobile, household appliances, and the pill. Um, can you jump into these a little bit and talk about why they were so important? Well, absolutely. So, so what I talk about in, in what I call mid-century modern is three of what I consider to be the most important technologies of the 20th century, especially in terms of how they reshaped family life. So the automobile is the first, and, and that the automobile, and people know this, really reshaped our notions of suburbs. It reshaped how we lived, and crucially, it gave physical freedom. It gave mobility to many people who didn't have it before. And it, and it gave a lot of mobility to women who for the first time, or certainly in a more amplified way, could leave the farm, could leave the village, could go to town. They could be alone in their cars. Um, it, it also created, in many ways, the whole notion of a teenager. Teenagers now had a freedom to go alone in their cars and be with, with dates, whereas before they had to do this on their parents' front porches. So I think the car is really an instrument of, of freedom for many people. And then the second one, and, and this is really something that I think gets over, overlooked in our history of technology, household appliances were a huge deal. Now, they were, they were helped, of course, by electricity, which is also a huge deal. But we kind of know electricity was super important. I think people tend to forget that the washing machine and the refrigerator were really technologies of liberation. Because even though people, myself included, complain nowadays about how, how hard it is to do the laundry, I mean, it's nothing compared to what it took a housewife in the 1920s to do her family's laundry. Laundry is heavy and it's wet and it's, it needs to be dragged and dried. And it took hours and hours and hours every week for a woman to do her family's laundry. Once you have a washing machine, a woman get those, gets those hours back. And I, I wouldn't go nearly so far as to say that it was the washing machine that liberated women, but it certainly paved the way. Because once women had washing machines and refrigerators, so they didn't have to can and preserve and go shopping every day, it gave women extra hours in their weeks. Now, some of those women had also always had to work for wage labor, and many times they were doing housework in other women's homes. Some of those women chose to use their new hours to stay at home and make the house cleaner and cook more, more often. But many women took the opportunity to go into the paid labor force. And so I argue that it was these appliances that really enabled the feminism and the move towards women, toward women working that we see happening sort of starting around mid-century. And then finally, and crucially, and many people have made this argument, I argue that the, the, the contraceptive pill was a major technology of liberation for women. Up until the pill, and, and success, you know, a reliable contraception more generally, but particularly the pill, you know, women had to spend the vast bulk of their lives either pregnant, trying to become pregnant, trying not to become pregnant, nursing, you know, they, they were bound to their, to their childbearing role. Once you have the pill, women can separate sex from reproduction. And not always and not for everyone, but in a quantum leap forward, can now control their reproductive lives to a way that would have been unimaginable um, before the pill. 
It's interesting. I mean, so far we're talking about these two different stories or these two different technological revolutions and how at first, let's say the plow, the switch to agriculture really hurt women, let's say. But now we're talking about a big change that, and I think you argue this in the book, that it's through the advent of these technologies that we begin to see, as you would argue, kind of women liberation movements, I guess. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't mean this to sort of say that the the feminist activists and and advocates didn't play a huge role because they did, but I'm arguing that technology was a major force that enabled them to fight for women's rights. Yeah, and I mean now as we kind of move closer to the present day, we get into even more complicated, big questions of technology. The first being IVF in vitro fertilization. So. I mean, I think we get a sense of this, but if you can kind of talk about philosophically what what this technology did to our sense of family, I'd love to hear about it. Sure. So I've actually been writing about reproductive technologies for nearly 20 years now, and I remain fascinated by them, um, in part because they've been, until quite recently, kind of this quiet, almost covert corner of activity. for many years, people saw assisted reproduction as something that shouldn't be talked about and certainly wasn't seen of as technology. But assisted reproduction, in my opinion, is a huge deal. And again, if you, I find it helpful to think about the broad sweep of history. People have been making babies one way since the beginning of time. And all of a sudden, in the span of less than 50 years, we now have a variety of ways to make babies that don't involve sex at all. And that's a huge deal. I mean, and that's a massive change in technology. And fundamentally what it does is it separates reproduction from sex. And I like to think of it sort of as the flip side of of the pill. So what the pill did was, was to separate sex from procreation. And now with assisted reproduction, we separate reproduction, sorry, we separate reproduction from sex entirely. So people can have sex without babies and babies without sex. And in the course of human evolution, this is a really big deal. And it changes not only women's roles, but I think much more importantly, it it shapes how we think about the family. Because if you go all the way back to the agricultural revolution, and you, you know, by my argument, at least in part, the family as we know it emerged as a way to create and protect children. We needed marriage because we needed to produce those children and know who their parents were. Now we can produce children through a variety of different ways. Uh, Gay men can create children. Lesbian couples can create children. Single people of either gender, of any gender, gender can create children. So marriage, and I say this, you know, caveating it as someone who's been very happily married for 35 years, but marriage as an institution is no longer necessary to either create or protect children. And so if you follow the logic alone, you kind of get to the point of saying, well, we don't really need it so much anymore. What will happen as, as we continue to evolve? And my, my argument is that marriage won't disappear, but it will splinter. And we're already seeing this, you know, in just the course of my lifetime and yours, we've gone from a world where it was almost impossible to imagine two men or two women being married to one where it's kind of an everyday occurrence. Yeah. And as you talk, I hear this whole chorus of conservative voices come in and say how how still, how crucial the traditional family structure is, how marriage is still the cornerstone of a healthy life. And I'm sure these are 
pushbacks that you'll get, even though I know you're kind of talking about this more in kind of a bigger sweep of history? Yeah, and I think, and then so I just there was an article today that sort of criticized me on ex- intelligently on exactly those grounds. But you know, my response to that in part is, I fundamentally believe that children need to be raised in a loving, stable environment. But there's lots of different ways to create that environment, and the heterosexual married couple may not be the is not the only way to do that. And and one of the things I describe in the book, which personally I found really interesting to, to sketch out, is if you look at the cases, the Supreme Court cases that decided a marriage equality in this country and similar cases in other countries, they were actually decided in most part based on the rights of the children. So when same-sex couples fought for marriage rights based on uh, human rights, they, they didn't win. But once same-sex couples began to have children, and those children by almost always were created through technology. They were children created by assisted reproduction. Once those children were part of the picture, then the courts began to decide these cases favorably based on, somewhat ironically, the very conservative argument that it is in the best interest of the child to be part of a two-parent stable household. Therefore, the child's parents should be allowed to get married. So it's actually a quite conservative argument in favor of a two-parent household. It just happens that the two parents now are of the same sex rather than opposite ones. Yeah. And I mean, it makes me think that culturally, I mean, there are shifts happening, I think probably maybe even in public opinion or in the courts um, about the notion that the modern family looks a lot different than it used to. And the fact that two gay men or two women have a baby is kind of just seeping into the norms of American society, right? Yeah, it absolutely is. And and, and again, in a relative short period of time, um, we've grown quite accustomed to the same-sex household and crucially to single-parent households, uh, that we don't really think much anymore about a single mom raising her kids or even a single dad. And and I think part of this too, which is rarely talked about, we I think we're also getting increasingly comfortable with the idea that not everyone has to be married and have children that there really is a multiplicity of ways to to lead a happy and productive life, and they don't all look like the leave it to beaver cleavers uh, of the mid-century. Now, the, the next thing you write about, and um, you've, you've written about this recently in the New York Times as well, is, is kind of the next generation of technology, which is not IVF, it's IVG. What is this? Yeah. So first of all, I should caveat by saying, uh, you know, these this technology is not yet possible. It has not come out of the laboratory. It may not, but it's an intriguing technology that's very much on, on the scientific horizon. And and IVG stands for in vitro gametogenesis. And what it means is that using um, in vitro technologies to create gametes, gametes or eggs or sperm. And so the basic notion is that you would take a, a cell, presumably a skin cell from a living human being convert that cell into a stem cell, and then the stem cell can be used to generate um, either an egg or a sperm, although women's cells can't generate a sperm because they don't have the Y chromosome. But in theory, what that would mean is that in particular, two gay men could have a child who is genetically fully theirs because you could create an egg from one man's uh, cells and a sperm from the others. It, It also opens up the possibility, which I describe in that piece, of having ever more fluid combinations of people parenting. 
that people, and it really, in my mind, it just sort of continues the, the, the um, evolution that we've seen since contraception and then IVF of splintering this kind of traditional family unit that two women could have a baby together. They may, they may or may not be in a romantic relationship. People could have sex with one partner and they could choose to become parents with another partner or with a set of partners. Um, we're not there yet, but, but I think we're starting to see the beginnings of that, of that shift as well. Well, that was one of the things in, in that article that really jumped out at me was that a, a household of roommates could have a baby together and they would all be kind of genetically linked. That's wild. Yeah. And again, not not possible entirely yet. But if you think about it, I mean, you know, certainly in my own social circles, and I suspect in many people's, there are folks who find themselves without a romantic partner in their late 30s, early 40s, and they want a baby. And they may not want to have that baby or raise that baby as a single parent because it is harder. So they might choose to raise that baby with a best friend with an older person who's retired and has time on their hands. And what these technologies enable us to do is to imagine a world in which those people could become the parents of a child, even if they had no romantic or sexual relationship between them. You know, as I listen to you, there, I, I feel this kind of this amazement in the sense of where all this technology is going. But I also feel in the pit of my stomach this profound sense of confusion with all of this. I wonder if you kind of get that from a lot of people. Like, what does this all mean kind of for us? Well, I, yes. I mean, I think on one hand, it's just, it's head spinning, right? Because it's upending sort of all of our norms that we were raised in, that we see on television, that we're bathed in. On the other hand, um, you know, I come away from this research and, you know, having looked at these issues for a really long time with perhaps a bizarre sense of optimism, because when you look at how these technologies are being used, I mean, I think there's this sort of buried fear, or maybe not even so much buried fear out there, that kind of dictators will use these technologies to clone armies and that people will do evil things with them. And yet in kind of every story I've seen, and I've seen a lot by this point, there's a very deep, profound, poignant human need. People aren't creating armies, they're just creating babies and they wanna love those babies. And, you know, I think there's a certain beauty in that. And, and I know, I mean, what, what perhaps has shaped me in my own life, I, I created my first two children, you know, the very much the old fashioned way. But uh, then my husband and I adopted a child. We adopted a six-year-old. And clearly there was no technology involved there. But, you know, I've had the personal experience of, of being a parent to a child who wasn't created, if you will, the old fashioned way. And it's a wonderful, loving, profound experience. So I think that sort of opened me up to thinking about uh, the very the many manifestations that love can take. You know, both the love of a parent for a child and the love of people for each other. So yes, on the one hand, this is as I said, head spinning. But on the other hand, I, I my my hope here is that we see where these technologies are heading, and that we put some guidelines around them, which our country does not do very well uh, at this point. I don't think it should be a wild west of fertility treatments. I think there are definitely abuses that 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 are can be uh, experienced with the use of these technologies, but we have the political power to rein them in, um, and that's my hope. Although I don't see, I'm not optimistic about that part right now. Deborah Spar is a professor at Harvard University and the author of Work, Mate, Marry, Love: How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
Coming up, how chatbots can help with loneliness during a pandemic and how we are adapting our own behavior to accommodate these machines. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Professor Deborah Spar about how, historically, technology has radically altered our most basic sense of human relationships. And as we'll learn in a minute, the pace of change is only accelerating in the present day. COVID has brought us numerous challenges, and one of the most significant is an outbreak of loneliness. As Cade Metz of the New York Times has been reporting, hundreds of thousands of people have resorted to talking to computer programs, also known as chatbots, which then talk back in real time. It's a way to feel connected to something. But can this kind of connection really replace human interaction? And what are the ethical implications? Well, Cade Metz, thanks for joining us here on Life Examined. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, you you wrote this really interesting piece about something called the Replica app, and it gets into big questions about chatbots, about loneliness, about how we're interacting with these new forms of technology. So to kind of break it down in the simplest form, what is a chatbot? How, how does it even work? A, a chatbot nowadays is, is an app, um, you know, a piece of software on your smartphone that you can chat with. Uh, so in theory, at least, to carry on a, a conversation, uh, a turn-by-turn -turn conversation, where you say something and, and you get a, uh, a reply, um, hopefully a, a rational and um, a relevant reply, right. and, and you go from there. Th there's been, over the past few years, it, at least in the, the tech industry, driven by companies like Facebook and, and the like, a lot of hype around the idea these types of things were proposed as a way of dealing with customer service agents and being your sort of your main avenue to businesses online. That hasn't really happened. Mm. Um, the technology, as this hype got started, just wasn't up to the task. Uh, these were essentially uh, apps that were built um, with a very careful set of rules. If, if you say X, the app responds with Y. Um, Built in that way, you can never have an app that carry on that, that carries on a decent conversation. There's right. too many possibilities as you and I converse. But what has started to happen just recently is that this technology has shifted towards uh, a new method where literally systems have been built that can learn conversation from vast amounts of human dialogue. This might include chats online, um, you know, chats uh, through existing, you know, um, texting services, Twitter, um, discussion forums online like Reddit. Mm -hmm. Literally, these these mathematical systems look for patterns in these conversations, and then use that to to learn how to carry on a conversation on their own. Um, that method is still in the early stages. But it's starting to produce something decent. And Replica is a decent example of where this is going. And I mean, what we saw uh, since the beginning of this pandemic is that this app got downloaded, what, I believe half a million times. Um, so there, there was suddenly this need to converse with, with the bot, I guess. I mean, what... I, I can sense loneliness might have been a big part of that. But from the folks that you spoke to, why did they need this thing? It's interesting. So yeah, you're right. That phenomenon 
the quarantine phenomenon converged with this technological phenomenon. Right. And the reason Replica is so interesting is that it, it was built in the old way, like with a set of rules, basically, but has started to incorporate this new method where these systems can can learn from human conversation. And I want to stress it still early, but those that new technology as it was folded into this app, you know, hit at a time when we're all in our homes, separate from other people. Some people more than others are hungry for human interaction of some sort, conversation of some sort. And in spades, people started turning to this app. And and I again, I want to stress, it's not always perfect, but it can carry on a turn-by-turn conversation at a level that is surprising to a lot of people, that is comforting to a lot of people, to the point where, and I talked to dozens and dozens of people who use this over the course of several weeks, to the point where they really feel an attachment uh, to this app. They they name their app is part of the way it works. Um, and it assumes this personality. They're able to ask it questions. They're able to share, in many cases, their, their most intimate thoughts, um, their most secret thoughts, um, you know, the pains in their life, and, um, and essentially vent to this inanimate smartphone app. Mm. And to some people, that might seem strange. To other people, it's like it, it was a real comfort um, during quarantine. Yeah. One thing that caught me is, as I'm a student of, of psychology and, and study psychotherapy, was that the, the model that's being used here is one of um, what we call humanistic psychology based off the work of Carl Rogers. So there's a lot of empathy, um, positive regard, positive reinforcement. And so I think it's important to mention that that these bots kind of um, <laughs> are, are students of psychology at the same time. Yeah, I, it's a good point. And um there have been studies about this. There's one in particular out of Stanford University that shows that this sort of positive reinforcement from apps like this uh, can be helpful to people. Um, but there is a flip side to that. Um, it's not as if there's a consensus on, on that. Mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of um, um, psychologists and, uh, and, and analysts um, who question that. Um, in while acknowledging in the short term that can help you out it can improve your mood in the long term it may or may not be beneficial and their point is that ultimately our goal should be to have relationships with with other humans right and a lot of people i talked to who use the app would agree with that and with human interactions you don't always get positive reinforcement. Right. Uh, you have to deal with conflict. Um, you have to deal with criticism. That's just part of relationships. And you're not necessarily getting that from, from these apps that are designed for positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, in some cases, though, that criticism does pop up, I have to say. I talked to a lot of people who, who saw that. They didn't always get agreement from their app. And, what, and they got what they saw as criticism in some places. And, and they saw the value of that as well. You know, I think that it is interesting that this technology came online during during a, what we could think of as a pandemic of loneliness. But loneliness existed pre-pandemic, too. And one thing we hear a lot about is that kind of the the growing number of elderly folks in America who live in isolation, who experience isolation uh, on an emotional level every day, and that 
that this technology might actually be useful for this aging population. Am I right? You're exactly right. A lot of people feel the same way. And, and like I said, the technology is improving at the moment. It's not completely clear how quickly it will improve and if, if it will get to the point where it is you know, completely convincing and can, can really replace human interaction. You know, I, you know, again, we're not quite there yet, but a lot of people, people see this technology um, in that way, um, mm-hmm. that it can not just in times of quarantine, but at any time provide that sort of human-like interaction that people crave. Well, um, to dive into some of the moral and philosophic questions here, I want to bring in Colin Allen. He's the co-author of Moral Machines, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong, also the professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Pittsburgh. Colin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, as you were listening in there for the last eight minutes or so, I I kind of just want to get your initial reactions to some of the things that we're talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of really uh, interesting issues to pick up on there. I mean, one of the things that I actually have a question for Kate about is the extent to which these sorts of interactions that people are engaged in are frequent but short or less frequent but long. So do people spend 30 minutes interacting with uh, Replica or, or just a few minutes from time to time during the day? Because I think that really speaks to the where the technology is. It's, it's, there's a number of technologies that are getting quite good at uh, relatively short term back and forth, but they, uh, as far as I know, don't, don't have the ability to sustain the kind of context that we would have in a human conversation that's spread over minutes to hours. Well, let's jump in. Kate, Kate do you have any sense of that? Oh, yeah, he, you're exactly right. It's, 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 it's short conversations. Hmm. Um, in a way, it mirrors, you know, the way we use apps in general, where, you know, we'll use it, use it a bit, switch to something else, switch back. Um, these conversational systems are the same way. They cannot sustain a really lengthy conversation. That's, that's one of the flaws. Um, they can't necessarily hold the context uh, for that. And that's what people are trying to improve. And, and that's and that's one of the reasons people find them so convincing is because they only use them briefly um, and they don't see the, you know, the ultimate limitations. And it's going to break down completely as you move, move beyond that. That's uh, great. That's really what I suspected. And it also speaks, I think, to different kinds of engagement that people have with these kinds of technologies. So, so I think a lot of people go into interacting with Replica online or any other kind of uh, artificial intelligence. It could be, um, you know, a toy robot of some kind, um, with the idea that this has certain abilities and they're going to have fun interacting with it. But they're not really trying to probe it in the way that one might in what's uh, traditionally known as the Turing test, where part of the goal of the interrogator is to actually show that this thing isn't capable of doing things that a human being would do. Um, and so people go in with a kind of level of credulity hmm. because they're approaching it for certain reasons that are different from probing the real intelligence of the system. Um, that then lends them or leads them to perhaps over attribute the capacities um, to the system. And I think the ethical issue in the broader picture here then is whether we're doing enough uh, as a society, as people who are uh, producing or thinking about technology to actually 
train people to be more skeptical of these systems and to therefore actually try to figure out what they can and what, and more particularly what they cannot do, because that's what gives us then a better basis for understanding what we really can expect out of interactions with them over a broader range of circumstances. Can you say more about why why that's important? I mean, because it also sounds like people are getting some value out of this. So why should they also be more skeptical of them? Yeah, so I think there's a number of different attitudes. You could just say, well, it's just for entertainment and there's no problem with that. Um, but actually this idea that that a simple program of some kind or even a very complex program of some kind can be an outlet for the sorts of um, unloading of one's worries and so on um, uh, that's that's beneficial is an idea that actually goes all the way back to the 1960s and Joseph Weizenbaum's ELISA program, which uh, caused quite a stir back there, which is actually a very dumb set of rules for responding to uh, linguistic input um, that is way more limited than replica. Yet, in the situation that people found themselves in the 1960s, nevertheless, people found it very engaging. So the program mimics a certain kind of psychotherapist mm -hmm. and operates basically by asking questions. So if I type in something to the machine, I'm thinking about all of the work that I've got to do, the program will, will pick up on certain keywords in the input and then turn that around back as a question. Why do you think you're spending so much time thinking about work, for instance? And people found this very engaging to the point where Carl Sagan even suggested that there would be coin-operated psychotherapy uh, units on every street corner, much as there were phone boxes back wow. in the day. Um, and Weizenbaum himself thought this was horrific. He thought that this was not the purpose of uh, his own research. And he actually um, backed away from doing that kind of research and started to write about how uh, that kind of approach to these kinds of systems would in fact, lead to reducing the kind of human-human interaction, which I already heard come up in the discussion that the two of you were having earlier. So, so one worry is that it's uh, even if it's entertaining, it's also seductive in a way that actually ends up undermining more important long-term relations that uh, are important for all sorts of reasons, not just human well-being, but also our ability to get things done and, and uh, uh, live in a functioning society. Colin, talk about what it means for, for humanity um, to become guided by automation. Can you, can you say a little bit more about that, you know, and, and how we speak, how we write, how we date, how we select? Um, what does that mean? Yeah, I think there's that's a, a multifaceted question, too. So the the positive spin on being guided by automation is that these are very powerful tools that will allow us to do things that we can't easily do without them. And what could be wrong with that? Um, although, of course, with power comes all sorts of danger. But nevertheless, if I can now process, you know, terabytes of data or petabytes of data with the help of machine learning or artificial intelligence, um, medicine's improved, it's just a tool, it's, uh, it seems like a good thing. But, but I think on the more mundane level, these kinds of 
uh, intrusions of the technology or uh, in invitations of the technology into our homes um, comes along with certain changes in our own behavior to accommodate the machines. So I'll give an example. I've got one of those smart speakers here in the room with me. I won't name it because it'll try to fire up. Yeah. <laughs> but if I talk to it as I normally talk to it, it's actually not all that good often at getting what I'm asking it to do. But I have learned over months of interaction with this thing that if I speak at a certain pace in a certain way, it's actually pretty good at that. So it has, in some sense, not deliberately, trained me to modulate my behavior in a way that enables me to use this tool to play my favorite public radio station. Right. Um, and I've seen similar things go on elsewhere. So a while back, um, Google had this thing going on where they were uh, inviting people to interact with their uh, drawing recognition program. So uh, they would give you a word, you would draw something on your computer, um, um, you would get five words and you would get five drawings, and then it, we, the AI software or the machine learning software would attempt to label that. And I spoke to a friend who had been playing with this, and she was saying, this is amazing. It got better and better as I went on. And I'm like, no, it didn't get better and better. Because what happened was, after each batch of five, they not only told you what it had guessed, and you saw that it got two out of five right, or one out of five right initially, and in the end, five out of five. They also showed you examples of other pictures that were drawn in a way that the machine gave the correct label for them. And so it was actually training you to draw these stick figures in a way that enabled it to come up with a higher performance. But people are so unaware that they're adjusting their own behavior to fit the limits of the machine that um, I think there are real dangers there. And my favorite sort of fictional example of this uh, is a, a British television show from uh, 20 years ago called Little Britain with this recurring character, Carol, who uh, works in various places from hospital reception desks to, to travel agents. And people come in with perfectly reasonable requests and she bashes on the keyboard for a while and then stares at the screen kind of vacantly and goes, computer says no. <laughs> and right. this idea that we are going to let our choice of a vacation or ability to get admitted to a hospital be governed by the limitations of these machines. I think it represents a real danger. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's even broaden that out even more here. You know, um, yes, there's probably a part of us that is having to um, that is having to adapt or is being trained in a way by by computers or different forms of intelligence, how we speak, how we write. But, you know, I was so interested in seeing how this could impact children. I, I, I got a message from my sister the other day saying that she's constantly being marketed online, these small robots um, to hang out with her two-year-old or three-year-old daughter as a means of keeping her company, of teaching her. And, and that kind of also blew my mind to think, wow, are we getting to the point where this is going to start impacting children too? This could impact how we teach children, how children are trained. And to me, there seems to be a lot of philosophic and moral implications in that. Yeah, I mean, of course, many of our ideas about what the problems are are not always borne out by the research. So similar sorts of concerns have been expressed about playing computer games, for instance. Oh, sure. It turns out that kids who play certain kinds of computer games actually end up pretty good on all sorts of very important tasks, like being able to uh, uh, track 
objects in visual scene and so on. So, so there may be benefits to, to certain kinds of interactions, but we, we don't really know it's just, if we're just trying to guess uh, what's good and what's bad. Um, so yes, there, again, there are dangers. And I, and I want to also be clear that I'm not you know, a pessimist about the technology. If anything, I'm sort of an optimist about the technology. But I think we want to go into it with our eyes wide open and not just swallowing the marketing um, information that comes mm -hmm. from the companies that are trying to sell these things to us. Um, and that's part of then generating the, the skeptical attitude. So now when it comes to kids, of course, um, there's a further danger, which is just as some parents park their kids in front of television, which also, by the way, is not all bad, right? right? right. But park them in front of television rather than engaging them in the kinds of ways that we know are beneficial from research um, with other kinds of interactions between parents and children, including reading to them. Um, there's a similar danger that if you have a sufficiently entertaining robot toy, that will take away time from things that we know that they ought to be getting as well. Mm -hmm. So so I think uh, the, the issues with children are amplified, as it were, by the fact that um, adults might assume that this thing is an appropriate and uh, exclusive form of entertainment or even education for them. Yeah. Um, well, Cade Metz, kind of back to you as we think of the future here. Um, what, do, what do you think we're going to see coming down the pipeline? And I also wonder at the same time, are these companies kind of keeping an eye on some of these larger moral questions we're talking about? Well, they they are and they aren't. Um, you know, there are there are opposing forces here. On on one level, these companies there's pressure on these companies to keep an eye out for this stuff. On another level, these are public companies who are driving most of the leaving research, and there is huge incentive to make money. And and so you know you have this push and pull, and it, and it's really unclear where it's going to go. I mean, all these issues we've talked about are enormous issues, and and we haven't. We haven't talked about all the problems um, mm -hmm. that may come. Um, you know, one of the one of the chief problems is is disinformation. Um, you know, it's not just about individual people talking to a chatbot. Once you have a convincing chatbot, how do you know who you're speaking to online is real? Um, yeah. It becomes easier uh, to propagate information online. Um, we have to think about that. These systems, like I said, are learning from human dialogue. What that also means is that they learn our biases. You know, as it learns from human conversation, um, it's going to learn the way that people online are biased against certain groups and individuals. These are all huge issues. And it's unclear, you know, if these public companies really have an incentive to, to deal with all that. And there are lots of, you know, lots of efforts to do this, um, and as as companies compete, um, they can't just shut it down, right? Um, uh, there's incentive to keep competing, all of them pushing it forward. And, and as you push it forward, you may or may not have dealt with or, or properly examined all these issues we've talked about. Cade Metz is a technology reporter for The New York Times. We really appreciate the time. Thank you. Glad to do it. Thanks. And Colin Allen is a professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Pittsburgh, also the author of Moral Machines, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong. Colin, thank you for the time. Thanks. That was a great pleasure. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. 
You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.